Abolition. Abolition. This morning, mounting disbelief over these photos and cell phone video. They show a pair of white police officers on horseback in Galveston, Texas, walking a handcuffed black man they've just arrested to a staging area using a rope. There's no excuse, by the way, they treated my brothers. No excuse. The family of 43-year-old Donald Neely says he suffers from mental illness, is homeless, and has had multiple encounters with police over the years. He was arrested for misdemeanor trespassing. What they did was real inhumane. It was real degrading. They treated my brother as he was a dog. At a rally last night, the community urged police for more than just an apology. When they dragged Donald Neely down that road by horses and rope, it was like they was dragging our entire community down the road. Galveston's African-American police chief apologized to Neely in a statement calling the arrest an unnecessary embarrassment, adding that while the officers followed a trained technique, the department is immediately banning its use. I have to learn from it. My agency has to learn from it. And I commit to you that we will do better. No disciplinary action has been taken against the two officers. Neely's family wants them fired. The picture that it paints for anybody who has studied or seen any references to slavery, I think that's why it's so appalling to everyone. Online, seething comments about the images. Not a lick of common sense or human decency, tweeted one user. This man is not your slave or your boy, wrote another. I'm done hiding. I'm done hiding. How many say what I'm Spiritual chainsaw, chop you down till your brain's gone. When the Lord comes back, call me your game's off. The wicked are overthrown, your engines are overblown. Diminishing chromosome, this ain't the same song, no. I come to give you your final warning. Submit to the Lord now, with Sean Kingston. You'll be in that fire burning. The jig is up, listen up, this is that higher learning. I know it night you're nervous, you know the tide is turning. You feel the tires turning, my verses and tire sermons. Little bit of yes, but sweet as Aunt Jemima syrup. Ready to ride, put my feet inside the stirrups. I'm trying to spur a connection, you're just trying to find some service. It hurts to give you this message, but someone's got to mention. You're piling up your debt and God is coming to collect it. He's got a score, he's got to settle. I hope you've grown cold, because you're about to be hot forever. Cut you down. Run on for a long time. Run on. 
that long tongue liar Go and tell that midnight rider Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter Tell him that God's gonna cut him down Tell him that God's gonna cut him down One more thing, yeah Mountains fall on you. I hope you got a place to hide out when he calls on you. Gone in the way of pain, trust me, he's got his mark on you. I hope somebody built a fireproof arc for you. Now let me talk to you. Uh, I cling to my Bible because I find it all true. Uh, this world is evil, and that's what the cross proves. Proselytize for secret religions up in the dark room. What is said in the closet will be heard on these songs, too. God doesn't want me to tone this message down. So I'll just speak it in these raps and these letters for now. Soldier for the Lord and I know he won't let us down Spiritual war and I don't plan to lay my weapons down Can't wait for the day that he locks the devil down Glory, glory, hallelujah, what a blessed sound The time has come, my man is out You can try to run, but let me tell you now run on for a long time Run on for a long time Run on for a long time Go tell that long tongue liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backslider. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. When they drag down a Neely down that road by horses and ropes. It was like they was dragging our entire community down the road. Down the road. heard a story from the Today Show of Galveston, Texas officers on horses leading black man Donald Neely by rope. And that's from the Today Show. And then you also heard his brother, Andy Neely. And that was followed by a great track, Sooner or Later, God's Gonna Cut You Down. It's a rap by Chris Black, Ohio. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Brother Yusuf. I'm here at the Park of the Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, trying not to kill Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah, (laughs) that's a good one. So I know everybody hasn't heard uh, heard from us in, in two weeks, but we're back. We're back. We're both back in the saddle. And in Season 3, Episode 30, wow, can't believe that, Episode 30 already, we'll discuss the August 14th premiere of the documentary, Slave State 2022, that was held in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we'll be joined by some of those who were there for that historic event. We've also got some powerful teaching to do about the state of Louisiana. It's historical 
uh, to present connection to chattel slavery, convict leasing, and mass incarceration. Pattern recognition is a superpower. I'll say that again. Pattern recognition is a superpower. We'll update you on the upcoming August 28th anniversary event for the Abolish Slavery National Network, which will be held in Burlington, Vermont, and spend some time in remembrance of the largest prison slave labor work strike in U.S. history. The Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington, D.C. was held on August 19, 2017, a catalyst moment that changed everything. And as always, the musing of poetry mixes will be diverse, powerful, and on fire. This week we have a special Bridging the Gap segment that you don't want to miss. Orson Welles will be reading John Brown's speech at his sentencing. That's right, Hmm. Orson Welles, author of 1984, Animal Farm, and other – well, I'm thinking of George Orwell. Sorry about that. (laughs) Orson Welles. We'll be reading John Brown's speech at his sentencing. And, of course, we've got flaming hot fire music mixes, poetry, and our Bridging the Gap segment, which will bring the voices of the abolitionist ancestors back to life for a new generation. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Max, let's catch the people up on the past two weeks. Man, uh, first I want to give a heavenly shout-out to Johnny Cash for – uh, that song, very powerful, and uh, brother uh, that followed up on the Chris Black, Ohio, he really uh, laid it down. Um, just thinking about that image and where it happened, Galveston, Texas, the birthplace mm-hmm. of Juneteenth. This was 2019, just uh, two years before it became a legal holiday. And I'm curious, what changed from 2019 to 2021 that made it a legal holiday? Because you was already still carrying black men by rope with white men riding horseback, dragging them down the street in 2019. It's shameful. Like, wasn't anybody even thinking that, you know, this is not how it should be done, that there's a problem here? Uh, but, you know, sooner or later, got to cut you down. So, yeah, that uh, track got me fired up. Um, we did a nice video with it, too, so you can find that on our page at Abolition Today. Um Check out the video of the opening track. Uh, you can see everything as it unfolds. Uh, so, yeah, it's been two weeks since we've been on air live. Last week, we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, for the premiere of Slave State, the documentary, which is uh, about slavery in Louisiana. And it is a continuation of the book by Brother Curtis Davis, uh, Slave State. So, yeah, it's a dream, another dream for him come true. After 26 years in Angola prison, he's an author, and now he is the producer of a documentary that is on its way to winning some awards and will be shown all across the state and across the country because we'll be doing a premiere of it as well in Vermont uh, next week when we're out there for the anniversary of the ASNN. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, an amazing few days you and i was riding in style man me you tag and travel yeah man <laughs> yeah. we are rolling up to this spot in the, in the cadillac escalade looking all good and stuff you know uh that was nice yeah and just and and just the entire trip just how we went through 
you know, so many historic towns. Although, you know, I did most of the driving, I still was taking in and absorbing the towns we were going through. You know, we're talking about going through Montgomery, Alabama, uh, Mobile, Alabama, you know, uh, going, passing through Columbus, Georgia. And, you know, actually, you know, uh, I actually, you know, part of my military service required me to go to Fort Benning, Georgia, right there. Just seeing that, but also thinking of like Phoenix City, Alabama, you know, and some stories of older people that I knew who uh, came from Phoenix City, Alabama, which is right across like a little bridge between Columbus, Georgia, and Phoenix City, Alabama, and just uh, the history of slavery in that area. You know, you know, when you often talk about the five-state solution, we literally drove through the five states, you know, going from Sumter, South Carolina, and going through Georgia, and going through Alabama, Mississippi, you know, and then uh, going into Louisiana, you know, just passing through those five states, all the historic sites. Uh, we passed a couple of signs talking about plantations, and, you know, we discussed, you know, wondering how many people even really knew the history of these places, because many of them are just like historic sites now or, you know, museums, you know, and, and then there's always still that get-out-ish feeling of many areas, you know, that you still – feel it you know people are just you know okay yeah they're talking nice to each other you know they're nice oh it's some blacks around but you know we we had some looks you know we recalled the looks and everything that we received and then another thing that just really dawned on me like we start thinking about movies and they always talk about the underground railroad like everything is just so quick fast in a hurry you know that's how they go from louisiana to new york but you see how long it took us to drive from Sumter, South Carolina, to uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and with GPS, you know. And we're trying to think of, you know, people having to navigate through the woods, over all of that, all those swamps and just everything that they've gone through. And I say historically, the movies just don't even give it any justice of the, the toil that went through on the Underground Railroad. So that's just like some great memories that I had of that, you know, that affected me, as well as, you know, the event that we had, you know, and it turned out really great. There was a great turnout, you know, great discussion, great discussions after seeing the film. So I already see we have hands raised, you know, ready to jump into the conversation on this, Max. Uh, no doubt, man. Before we bring in our first uh, caller, I do want to let people know that on August the 27th and 28th, you'll find me in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, It'll be tribal and myself, uh, Brother uh, Curtis Davis is joining us. I believe Sister Lakita is coming through as well. Um, But we'll be there first for African Land, first African Landing Day, which celebrates the uh, first boat that came in uh, with 20 and odd Negroes. Uh, that happens on the mm-hmm. 27th in Vermont. And then on the 28th at the Richard Kemp Center, we'll be holding our anniversary event for the ASNN. There'll be our entire, nearly our entire administration team from across the country, as well as representatives of the Freedom Five, the five states that are on the ballot this year to end slavery through uh, voter action. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be fire. It's going to be spoken word with tribal reign. Um, of course, I'm going to try to do something myself, <laughs> and we're going to have a panel discussion, <laughs> and we'll do a, a, our screening of Slave State. 
So, yeah, definitely looking forward to that. All right, so let's go ahead and bring in our first caller, uh, 9828. You are live um, with uh, Max Newsom on Abolition Today. Good morning, Max. I'm sorry, good afternoon, Max. I think it's me, Reverend Anderson. Peace, Reverend Anderson. How how are you? You know, one of the proudest things that happened while I was out there was hearing you talking about five states, the five states. Um, That is just, you know, I felt like I stepped back in time, and it was the ancestors working through us again, you know, uh, to end this thing. So, yes, welcome to Abolition Today, Reverend Anderson. Well, I wanted to first and foremost tell you what an honor it was to have you all in Baton Rouge and that we were all uh, just overjoyed with uh, the documentary itself and, of course, the the beyond uh, significant panel. And we are so looking forward to moving to November 8th where we can join the states that have finally ended constitutional slavery. So, uh, again, thank you so much for coming and visiting with us and joining us in in this this kickoff, but we were super excited to have you there. Uh, it was de- certainly our pleasure to be there. We've tried For to be sure. there since the very beginning of this effort that you put together in Louisiana, and we are going to do whatever we can do to make sure that it, it succeeds and makes history. Uh, tonight's program, we got a lot of information about the state of Louisiana and just really how it led the entire slave system throughout this country. The first is so many mm-hmm. terrible things. Um, so we'll be talking about that throughout the night. And if you've got time to hang out with us, we'd love some of your commentary on the things that we go over. Well, I, I think I'm going to try to learn more than I'm going to try to open my mouth, but I'm certainly going to stay on the line. So. <laughs> All right, no doubt. All right, let's we appreciate that. Our next caller, a 9740, you're here with us on Abolition Today. Good evening, good afternoon. This is uh, Brother Laramie. Laramie Griffin. Laramie Griffin. What's going on, brother? How y'all doing? How y'all doing? Another good day to wake up free. That's what I know. Um, uh, Laramie was the host at the Slave State premiere um, uh, in on August 14th in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, you did a wonderful job. And just the night before... You accepted a Freedom Fighter Award, right? Yes. Um, yes, I got an award in Shreveport, um, Louisiana, for the community work that I do um, here. Also, you know, it's it, you know, it's not just about standing up and just speaking about slavery. You have to freeze people's minds and bridge the gap that they don't have, which you know, knowledge social interactions, you know, it could be food, clothing, and just people standing up and waking up um, for the elderly, the people in their prime, and also the the children, which is the most important. So that's what that award was for. Did you have any favorite moments um, from the event? Um, All of them. The whole entire (laughs) thing, man. um, I can't pinpoint (laughs) Uh, and 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 seeing you guys again, meeting yourself for the first time, seeing you, brother Max again, seeing your queen, and seeing everyone um, come together again for this one common goal. And and what people say, little old Louisiana, but 
as uh, you've taught me and what I've learned is a lot has a lot started here um, as far as slavery and Jim Crow in Louisiana. So um, it really, really does matter. This is this is a very important thing. So I thank you guys for coming all the way um, through these southern states, driving through them, and like you say, uh, the navigation. Um, what our ancestors had to do to to walk with um, a, a minimal amount of knowledge of the current, you know, of their land to get to freedom and have to mm-hmm. fight for their lives every day. So um, most, most definitely, yeah. And and just to give out some dates, uh, uh, the Nat Turner, we're talking about him, August 21st, 18. 1831, you know what I'm saying, he mm-hmm. put in a slave revolt. Um, the the Soledad brothers uh, and what happened to them at the, in the beginning of August uh, at, in San Quentin. You know, it's so so many things happened this month, and we, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we dubbed this month Black August, you know, for, for, uh, for just freedom. That's what, it, that's what it means to me, just in a couple of words, it's freedom. That's what it means. And you know unity amongst people, and just fairness, and just to remove ourselves from this uh, from this chattel environment. I'm going to say that, uh, and just making sure that our ki- our children grow up free. You know, you know. I believe that's um, the only two things. Okay. No, no, no. I'm good. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, one of the things that uh, sticks out for me is with the southern states we have to craft a narrative that will bring on board people who don't look like us and don't aren't really exposed to these issues in any large degree it's amazing like we 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 were originally going to go to tennessee to do the asn anniversary but we ended up in vermont because uh we were told you know some you know these things might blow up. We might say something that scare away the Republican allies or uh, the white people. <laughs> and it's amazing how we got to bend over backwards to try to appeal to people when they should care just because it's human beings and it's happening legally in your own country. And there's a track mm-hmm. I want to play about that that kind of yeah. brings it back to the past. Back in the day in Louisiana. They made these postcards, which was called white slave children. It wasn't really white slave children. It was actually the children of the enslavers who were raping African women in order to get them pregnant and then sell their own children. And so they made these postcards about white slaves in Louisiana in order to appeal to people to end slavery then. Um, So we're going to go ahead and do some masterclass stuff. And give a little history lesson on the white slave children of Louisiana. And that's going to be followed by, uh, from Freedom is Mind Official, Rihanna Giddens with Julie. You're listening to Abolition, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 Let's go back in American history to the time of the Civil War. At that moment in history, there were those who considered black people to be not only inferior to white people, but almost subhuman. How then can you connect with people who automatically dehumanize you? 
by showing them people in your position who look like them. This was the concept behind the campaign promoting the white slave children of Louisiana. On January the 1st, 1863, the US President Abraham Lincoln declared the Emancipation Proclamation, thus declaring free approximately 3 million enslaved people. However, the proclamation exempted the loyal border states that remained in the Union and the Confederate states controlled by the Union Army. By 1863, there were 95 schools for free black people in Louisiana in areas controlled by the Union Army. Over 9,500 black and Afro-descendant children and adults received an education at these schools, which came at a great cost. In order to raise funds to keep the schools going, the National Freedmen's Association, the American Missionary Association, and union officers embarked on a publicity campaign. As a ploy to engage sympathy from the public and encourage them to donate, they sold a series of CDV photographs of light-skinned, white, European-looking, formerly enslaved children, juxtaposed with dark-skinned ex-slaves with African features. In total, eight emancipated slaves participated in the publicity tour, five children and three adults. Four of the children were extremely light-skinned and appeared white. Charles, Rebecca, Roshina, and Augusta. The fifth child, Isaac, and the three adults, Wilson, Mary, and Robert, were black with African features. Some of the adults bore signs of mistreatment. Wilson had the initials of his former slave master branded onto his head, and Mary's arms and back were covered in scars, a punishment for being 30 minutes late in bringing her former master a cup of coffee. Rebecca, one of the white children, had been a slave in her own father's house, who was also her master. Augusta had also been owned by a family member. Charles had been sold twice, once by his own father. The only dark-skinned child, Isaac, was noted as having been in school for the past seven months and having excelled and proven himself to be of great intelligence and ability. As well as being photographed for the cards that were sold, the group also travelled from New Orleans to the north. The cards were sold for 25 cents each, and the money raised went towards educating freedmen in Louisiana. Of the original series of prints, there are at least 22 that still exist to this day. And now you know the story of the so-called white slave children of Louisiana. Julie, oh Julie, won't you run? Cause I see down yonder the soldiers have come. Julie, oh Julie, can't you see? Devils have come to take you far from me. Leave this house and all you know 
leave here with what family I got left. They're all I hold dear. Freedom is Mine, official, followed by Rhiannon Giddens with her track, Julie, or Julia. What a great track that was, Max. Yeah, that was pretty powerful. As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and get some input from our guests. So, Reverend Anderson, uh, what do you think of that, uh, Not the lesson and the song? Check to oh, make sure sorry. you're not on mute. Sorry, I had, had a little trouble switching that off. I think one of the open secrets has always been how do you disown what is part of you and do it Mm. so blatantly and you know one of the interesting things we talk about now is that with DNA testing you know it's modern day who the baby daddy and those trees going back to the connectors or real life now, and the sheer idea uh-huh. that not just then, but today, you will throw away and put in a cage that which is part of your own DNA. So for me, it's one of those things where for a lot of us, if we have uh, connected with relatives, uh, the, the seasoned seniors in our, in our families, there are whole stories about passing. There's whole stories about these 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 hidden in plain sight situations. And so it's an interesting narrative that I think we have to to give to our children. We cannot allow our children not to understand that the past is never the past. Thank you very much, Reverend Anderson. Amen to that. Um, Yeah, it's amazing how we've got to twist around and craft narratives to appeal to people and show them how these people who are suffering look like them for them to care and it's it's just so 
evil to think that they were doing it to their own literal children. Um, right, it's own not, flesh and it's blood. It's not the worst they were doing. It's just one of those stories. And that's straight out of Louisiana, this white slave children of Louisiana and the propaganda campaign to reach hearts and minds. Brother Laramie, any commentary? Um, yes. Um, it, it, it goes to show you what what slavery really was and, you know, how many people tried to bring up the fact that uh, um, slavery was over-sexualization and uh, a false creation of a, a new race and even sacrificing their own uh, uh, just to keep that European blue-eyed uh, uh, thing going, you know, and they tried to create through that was that uh, that 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 DNA warfare, but that they couldn't change. And and we've seen over the years that you know the the African gene always takes over, but it's just why, you know, it's just a question of why. Um, and that's why we always talk about, and Reverend Anderson does too, and I tell people, I say, you can't say anything bad about the children here in Louisiana. She will tear you down a good one. You say anything bad about these children in Louisiana because this is what they went through. Um, and as you've seen, <clears throat> the children are the ones who are innocent, the ones who see first, especially here in Louisiana. It's like when we had our redistricting meeting um, for the parish, the people who were fighting to keep it uh to keep the percentages not fair as far as uh as far as white and black were older white people they had no young white people with them because they're they're keen to what their elders are doing and what their thought processes are but when you had people fighting for fairness black people uh you had lawyers, you had a couple of judges in the audience, you had young people, you had people from the street, you had um, you had all sorts of people up, down, left, and right fighting for just fairness and equality. Um, and it goes to show you the, the the white power structure; they will sacrifice their own just to just to cheat to try to win. But as you can see, um, they are actually losing. Yeah, it's uh, amazing how they try to downplay the trauma to uh, the trauma not only of the past, but where we're at right now. Um, here we are with Louisiana, where uh, what is the state's black population, like 27% or something like that? Uh, do you know? Yeah, yep, around that much, what, yeah. Around, around 27%, 30, yeah. around 30%, mm -hmm. and yet in the prisons, you're making up like 76% of the prison population. The jails are like 90% full of black people. And it's not because you're more criminal. It's because of the circumstances that you have been pushed into in this, in this state. Um, the constant oppression, the forced poverty, uh, the denial of uh, rights, the denial of opportunities, the lack of funding into communities that need it the most, and the over-policing where it's like hunting ground. Uh, in the film, do not resist. They have an image of a SWAT team going to a house in Louisiana. I believe it was in Baton Rouge, busting down the doors, busting down the windows, uh, terrorizing the family, including children, looking for weed. They had a tip that there was weed in the house. 
of all things, weed. So they got the SWAT team out for some weed. They can't find none. They even looked in the children's backpacks, and they found a backpack out in the yard, and they said there was like a little pinch of dust in it that was marijuana, and they wanted to charge the whole family with that. That's the type of terrorism and oppression. They didn't, when they left, they left everything in shambles. They didn't ask, uh, say that we're going to fix anything. There was no apology whatsoever. This was like, we can do this to you every day if we want to. And that's the type of environments we have to exist under. Yusuf? You're on mute, Yusuf. I don't even recall putting myself on <laughs> mute. There you go. But, yeah, just... just uh you know, looking at this history, you know, we and we know like the uh, Thomas Jefferson situation that came to light with uh, Sally Hemings. And, you know, as uh, Brother Laramie was just mentioning about when it comes to like DNA testing, you know, and just showing this history, because for some reason, people think that it, there are still people today that think it didn't happen, you know, that uh, that they would father these children and then sell them off, you know. And, uh, yeah, the more I read about it, the more disgusted I become of it, you know. And also just looking at how, you know, they had to, like in the case of, of uh, the story that they were talking about of how, you know, the, the lighter skin or the white-looking children – you know, we used as part of a campaign to just uh, get people to care. And we look at how that translates today, you know, and we talk about it all the time that if police were treating young white children the way they treat young black children, there'd be a lot of backlash behind that. There'd be a lot more care. But usually you find people immediately on social media justifying the treatment. You know, oh, he should have just done this, or he should have just done that, or police's lives on the, you know, police put their lives on the line all the time. It's always some justification for the treatment of the black individual, and we know that it would be different if it was the other way around. So this is just that link right there of just seeing how, you know, it goes all the way back to the plantation. Uh, Reverend Anderson, would you uh, like to comment further? Yeah, I was just thinking about when you were giving the numbers that here in East Baton Rouge, our juvenile justice system is 100% African-American. 100%? Wow. 100%. And when I say to people, are you under some illusion that the only people who do something bad are African-American children? Are you truly under that illusion? I said, because I can show you websites, social media. I can show you school records where that's a lie. And yet, one of the challenges we have, and it is a challenge to make people understand that policy criminalizes things, and policing chooses the victim. And we still Mm -hmm. have to teach folks. How many times do they get to break in your house? Do they get to stay on the corner and target your neighborhood? How many times do they get to devalue the folk who have worked hard for their homes? 
because they are targeting your neighborhood. They've reduced the property values of those folks. How many times do our children have to get attacked by canine officers before our folks get? We're targeted. This is not about justice. It's about just us. And the sad scenario oftentimes is that, as many of you probably know, right now we got babies that the governor, and I will say the governor, the Democratic governor of the state, plans on moving not to a juvenile facility, but to Angola. Right. Babies. children, because the theory is there's nothing that can be done with them. And the thing that Laramie mentioned that makes me both happy but sad at the same time is we have to be ever vigilant, have the luxury of taking a nap on these things. We don't have the luxury of not following what kind of legislation they're putting out, whether it is homeless ordinances to criminalize those who don't have a place to lay their head or a littering ordinance, which they did here in Baton Rouge, and they they passed it at the same time we were having Mardi Gras and they were having St. Patrick's Day and didn't nobody get arrested for this quote-unquote littering ordinance. It wasn't meant for them. And that we have to remember, as the saying goes, the past is never the past. And it's both the tragedy, but I think it's also the, the recognition that the battle doesn't end. And those of us like myself that have both children and grandchildren, I have to fight because I want better for them. I do yes. not want this to be their legacy. And the only way to change it is to stay in the fight and understand it's a long fight. It's not a short fight. Some would say that these are the remnants and legacy of slavery. Uh, but I say that this is slavery because the real world effects is that these young men end up in prisons. They end up in jails, exactly where you're trying to put them. Uh, there is such a thing as a school to prison pipeline. We do know that poverty and crime are directly related. And if you want to solve the crime problem, you have to solve the poverty problem. We know all of this, and they know it as well. And so it's like a it's like some rubber sticks with the Sharon taking us across to this damn place, you know. And most of our young ones don't even realize they they're almost like puppets. They're being controlled by these policies and environments to end up in these positions. And the opportunities that they should be given, which everyone else seems to be getting, uh, are not being allotted to them. Brother Laramie, would you like to make a comment or? statement before we get into our next track uh yes um i talked to uh talked to a guy earlier this year uh, i think it was late last year uh he's the advocate for a long time and he didn't realize him being from the streets uh him being an advocate he walked into um the uh, off of the juvenile just and he found out real quick that uh uh that it was 100% black children. And he said when he left, he had tears rolling down his face. You know what I'm saying? That's how serious this is. These are, these are children. These are babies. If you can't handle 25 children in one building, how can you handle a parish or a state 
or anything else. What is that saying about the the ones that are elected and selected? What is that saying about um, the, just the office of, of juvenile justice? What is that saying? You can't handle them. There are abandoned schools, buildings all across this parish. There are over 5,000 adjudicated properties in this parish, and you can't find one and find people that care, and you can to put one child, put one adult for every child, and find out what is really going on instead of just criminalizing them. That's what this is about. This is criminalization of these children with dog bites on their legs uh, every time they do something silly in school or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's ridiculous. So if the adults can't handle it, and then what is that saying? What, what, what does that leave the children? That's why we fight for these children. That's why I talked to them. I talked to two 15-year-olds yesterday, and they are very aware of how the school board is treating the system of between them and the other districts in the, in the parish. They know what's going on. So we have to empower them because obviously the adults are not doing a, 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 a job like they're supposed to be doing. So I always lift up the children first. Amen, they need their ass whooped. I want to introduce our next track. Before that, I want to share some information that Yusuf uh, taught me uh, that just recently. You know, in uh, about six, seven years after the 13th Amendment was ratified, they had this uh, case in Ruffin versus Commonwealth. And then that Supreme Court of Virginia declared that inmates or prisoners are for all uh, – affects property of the state or slaves of the state to be treated as mm-hmm. if they were dead men, right? But before that happened, Louisiana went after the kids. And there's this article, journals from uh, the University of Chicago, journals.uchicago.edu, uh, and I'm going to read a little bit out of it. It says, in 1848, State legislators passed a law declaring that all children born in the penitentiary to African-Americans serving life sentences would become property of the state. At the age of 10, these children would be auctioned to the highest bidder with the proceeds going to the state treasurer as part of the free school fund, meaning education for white children. Sales records between 1842 and 1862 for the East Baton Rouge County Sheriff's sale records indicate that 11 children were taken from their mothers at the state penitentiary and auctioned on the steps of the county courthouse in Baton Rouge. Records also indicate <clears throat> that penitentiary plantations purchased several of the auctioned children. Citing, uh, cited as evidence are newspapers, official reports from the penitentiary inspectors, biannual reports from the penitentiary leases, the official records of the War of the Rebellion, and the federal census of 1850 and 1860. So they determined in 1833 that the state would own children, right there in Baton Rouge, Uh, also out of Louisiana. The largest, and this is something many probably don't know, the largest slave rebellion in the entire United States happened in Louisiana in 1811 with the German Coast Uprising. And in 2019, a brother by the name of Dred Scott did a reenactment of that entire uprising. 
spending nearly a million dollars to make it happen. So we're going to share a little bit about that, and it's going to be followed by I Wish I Knew How It Would Be Free from Nina Simone. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. Today we're talking about Slave State 2022, Louisiana. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 You're listening to the beat of a freedom fight that echoes across the centuries. Each step on this 26-mile march along this Louisiana road is a measure of a story that has been suppressed until now. What's happening here represents a piece of history you probably never learned in school. The horses trot to the pulse of revolution. The muskets and machetes are a response to the daily horrors and dehumanization faced by an enslaved people. And each part, each player, is in sync to form a present-day representation of the nation's largest slave revolt. The 1811 slave revolt outside New Orleans is so unknown, you probably wouldn't even recognize its name, the German Coast Uprising. It's a significant part of history because even before the civil rights movement of the 60s and even the 50s, you see that there was a desire for freedom way back in the 1800s. In 1811, these enslaved rebels had the most radical idea of freedom and emancipation in the United States at that time. Hey fam, I'm Imayan. Today, we're going to travel back in time so I can tell you why there's this plaque marking the nation's largest slave rebellion and why you've probably never even heard of that uprising. Spoiler alert, it's by design. This is what more than a million dollars looks like. It's costumes, props, planning, and people. In 1712, Louisiana only had 10 Africans. By the start of the Civil War in 1860, the state had more than 330,000 enslaved people. Hundreds of years later, the descendants of the African diaspora are walking alongside each other as a reminder of a historic event. When a slave named Charles Delon plotted what would become the nation's largest slave revolt 208 years ago, he couldn't have envisioned that much money or an artist named Dred Scott reimagining his rebellion for the 21st century. And um, I wanted to do this because I'm very interested in the past, how the past sets the stage for the present. And I think it's really important for people to learn about this history, but also to think about how we get free today. Free today. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, say them clear for the whole round world to hear. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart I wish you could know what it means to be me Then you'd see and agree that every man should be free I wish I could give all I'm 
Today with Yusuf Hassan and Max Parthas, along with our guests on the line, Reverend Anderson and Brother Laramie Griffin. You just heard the 1811 German Coast Uprising reenactment in 2019 by Dred Scott, and that was followed by the timeless voice of Nina Simone, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Man, we so been Max, killing it with uh, the music on here. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Reverend Anderson, you know, what do you it's, think of, of, of the role we got going on this week with the education and the music? I'm amazed, uh, and not just because <laughs> I'm learning so much that is frightening, but the sheer talent it has taken for you all to put these together. Louisiana got some bad, some bad skeletons in the closet, don't we? Just <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and we're just getting started. We're just getting yeah. started. No, I, I know it's yeah. like when you go visit the haunted house and they tell you there's a ghost, but then it turns out every room you go in, it's a new ghost in there, and the new ghost is worse than mm-hmm. the last ghost. We got, we got some creepy little ghosts going on. But you also and have I, superheroes too, like you. Right. You know what's so funny? It's it's think about the work Laramie does, I think about the work that Curtis does, I think about the work that people like Lakita do, that the the fifty seven families of the people that were that died in a local jail that keep coming back and standing up knowing that the cost is so high. And it's those shoulders that when you get tired or frustrated or you wonder how much longer or you hear that hideous story about the selling, the selling of the children, and then you realize, what do we do now? We, we incarcerate children. We take them from their families. We put them in cages. We subject them to solitary confinement today, not in 1830, today. Mm -hmm. We take the children's daddy and we separate the families and we make sure that the parent that's incarcerated doesn't have two cents to contribute to that family. And those children are essentially being sold to the state. And the tragedy is that 
how many people that look like me do not understand they're before the grace of God. I tell people all the time, I don't care how much money God has blessed you to have and how nice the neighborhood you, you live in, let you mm-hmm. buy your child the car that your income allows and see how long it takes for the police to follow that child. Think about all the times that we have people that truly believe with all of their heart and soul that their titles or their degrees or their bank account are enough to make them not part of this enslavement story. And then when you think about the stories that you weave together to remind us, it is definitively a slave state. And nothing about slavery has died in this state. And yet, we have to remind people almost daily. I tell people all the time, you don't want to know the people that call me when their loved ones get incarcerated. When it's about me, myself, and mine. But you won't stand up for the child that you think is on the wrong side of the tracks. And yet, I promise you, whatever happens to that child, that's all your kid's getting. They're not getting a nickel better because in this system, they're still property. And the the tragedy that we have such a legacy, both musically and storytelling, of how we've had to overcome and overcome and overcome. And think about who we're talking about. We're talking about our babies have had to overcome. That's what breaks my heart, that when you think about a five- or a six-year-old being sold off into slavery, or a 10-year-old, or a 12-year-old being separated by the state and shipped off, and in this state, we had shipped our children off to Alabama. Mm. Because they're nothing but property. And the sheer fact that we are still living in a world where we have to pull back the covers and show the scars and show the video before people believe. I think for me, that's the thing that hurts the most is that our people did not do a good enough job of sharing the story of making sure that our people understood there still needs to be an underground railroad. Yep. That people died in real time for that vote. And that if we're not willing, if the one thing we're not willing to do is fight to end slavery in this state, I don't know what we're willing to fight for. So that, that story as, as, as a parent and a grandparent, but as somebody who watches what they do to our children in real time, the tragedy for me is that the, the, the rope is continuous. There's no break in that rope. It didn't break in 1863. It didn't break in 1865. It didn't break with the passage of the 13th Amendment or the 14th Amendment. It is still as strong and is connected to the necks of our children as it was in the 1600s. And that is really, really heartbreaking. 
it's it's shameful. It certainly is. Um, and speaking of the children, there's a news article that just came out recently. Um, it 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 talks about what's happening as of late in a story that's actually very old. Back in 2008, there was these two judges that were busted. They were taking kickbacks to every child that they would send to this for-profit private prison by the name of Merkel. And Merkel paid them each like nearly $3 million to do nothing but send children to their detention centers, where I think it was $240,000 a year to house them. So after a while, the judges got so greedy, they just started sending kids to prisons for things like throwing steak in school, writing on their desk. They gave them no lawyers, no, no, really no hearings. It was basically an assembly line that affected over 5,000 children, and uh, at least one of them committed suicide while they were in there. And the names of the judges was Mark Civarella and Michael Conahan, and the two of them got sentenced to prison. They, they pled guilty, got sentenced to prison. I believe they got, like, one got 20 years and the other got life. The one that got 20 years was released in 2020 for COVID restrictions, trying to reduce the number of prisoners inside these jails and prisons. And they did it by releasing the guy who helped send 5,000 children into for-profit prisons for kickbacks. And now recently a court has ordered that they have to pay $200 million to 300 families in the civil suit that's been put against them. Now, in context, let me just reiterate, we're talking about judges in America mm-hmm. who were taking kickbacks for doing nothing but sending children to for-profit detention centers. The company Merkel never had any of its officers go to prison. They were fined $80 million, but they made a billion dollars in profit. That sounds like a really good day to me. It wasn't a fine. It was the off the top they had to pay to the state of Pennsylvania. Um, you said- yeah, and just as you ended it, you know, talking about, you know, if this was a business, which it was, but, you know, if you go, you know, to your shareholders in a company, you say, well, you know, we want to venture into this project. And they say, well, how much is it going to cost? And you say, well, it's going to cost us $80 million, but we stand to gain a billion dollars out of it. They're going to green light that all day. So Every day. The company, yeah, the company didn't lose anything. You know, no one was ever charged at the company, as you mentioned, and eighty, $80, $80 million compared to a billion dollars is a drop in the bucket. You know, and it's just another slap in the face to the families of these children because chances are they're never going to see a penny out of this $200 million fine to the judges, you know, not to the company, you know. So, again, it's just a slap in the face. Just reading a little bit of the article, it says, Cinderella ordered children as young as eight to detention, eight years old to detention. Right. Many of them first-time offenders deemed delinquent for petty theft, jaywalking, truancy, smoking on school grounds, and other Mm -hmm. minor infractions. The judge often ordered youths he had found delinquent to be immediately shackled, handcuffed, and taken away without giving them a chance to put up a defense or even say goodbye to their families. This is just the ones they caught. The same companies that made a billion dollars are out there doing this all across America. If you look up how much it costs to incarcerate a teenager, 
versus what it costs to incarcerate an adult, you'll see it's usually five to ten times more. So if it's thirty thousand here, it might cost three hundred thousand dollars to incarcerate a youth, which is why they hunt our children. They're, it's price. It's like a bounty on their head. You go get that one. He's worth three hundred grand to the to the city, to the state, to the county. Um, any commentary left, Naomi? I also want to bring in uh, Brother Tag too. His mic is open. Well, let's start with Brother Naomi. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all I want to say in conclusion, uh, thank you all for coming again. Every time I see you, Max, it's like seeing the grandfather <laughs> of the movement. You know what I'm saying? Like. We had Marcus Garvey, people who met Marcus Garvey, people who met Malcolm X. I've met Yousef and Max Parthas, you understand? I, I'm i in concert with Reverend Anderson. She's always bigging me up, but she has the the voice of connection uh, here, in, here in Louisiana. And just across the states, period, um, as far as fighting for children and what matters and you know, from uh, policing to, you know, locking up our children, because she sees it every day, and you have to be a strong-willed person to see that and continue to, you know, honestly fight every day. So everything you got to say is 100% truth. I appreciate you all. Keep doing what you're doing. Like I said, if you don't hear from me, Hey, trust me, I'm doing something. <laughs> I'm doing something. So, uh, and I make sure I, I learn from those who who know more than me. I'm I am a student of you all. So I thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Max, you may have muted yourself by mistake. Yeah, I was. Thank you, Brother Laramie. Um, your opinion of me is much higher than I have of myself because I know that I'm standing you know? on the shoulders of giants. Um, and it, it, there wouldn't be a me without those who came before. I'm just carrying this thing Facts. for the next Facts. generation. But thank you so much. Uh, Brother Tag, you want to chime in? Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, I'll just continue in the question and the current of the shoulders of giants and and it's absolutely clear uh, across the board and um just I, I i heard reference um to the super uh heroism of reverend anderson and i can mm-hmm. definitely attest to that uh you know clearly and for everyone that heard just now uh, i'm sure that that's that's equally clear and Again, that 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 goes across the board uh, with with all of the strong work that's being put forward. And just as someone who's not from Louisiana, and recognizing that this question of uh, you know slave states and and states where enslavement continues to be practiced, uh, I I just want to rep the fact that uh, while all that's true about Louisiana is true. Uh, we we have to recognize the the universality, at least in terms of the United States, of uh, the legalization of these questions of enslavement, at least uh, as as is written and as continues to be federally so. So, 
as as someone who hails from another slave state in in those terms we have to just continue to uh resist in a sustained way against all forms of enslavement uh especially legalized because that is so uh just perverse it seems to just uh stand logic on its own head and uh ideally the the audio comes through was having some technical issues earlier but you know uh salute across the board to the abolitionists and uh greatly appreciated as always and um agreed i mean it it, it as far as how the youth in particular are approached out here it's it's as though we're looking at the womb to prison pipeline you know and 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 that's that seems to be the enslavers uh that a uh, main uh approach in the enslavers arsenal is right. inta- you know just attacking as as early as possible and those who are are most vulnerable so uh i just want to again salute across the board and uh please stay on the lookout for about the people which is slated to drop on the 31st of black august peace peace is that a documentary about the people is a broadcast is slated to be monthly to start out and is really stemming from and amplifying the work that spirit of mandela has been pushing forward behind uh charging and uh, continuing to recognize the U.S. Uh, with and for its charge, uh, its genocide, um, plural genocides, uh, past and present and uh, future. But curtailing that is is on the horizon. And uh, you know, big shouts to Abolition Today as always for repping that abolitionist energy as is needed. Thank you, Brother Tag. All right, let's Thank bring you so in much. one more caller. Uh, A762, you're on Abolition Today with Max and Yusuf and our guests yeah. today. Vermont in the house. <laughs> Hello. I just want to say I am so proud to be part of Abolition Today with the listening <laughs> to y'all and to be a student of Abolition Today University because there is nothing like the education <laughs> that we are receiving on Sundays. And on the archive. Um, I just wanted to say that statistic that Reverend Anderson gave about 100%, 100%. of children in Louisiana being African American. It's just breaking my heart. One wants to cry. And I'm from Vermont, so I can get Ben and Jerry's and cry because I just weep for our people. And she said a lot of um, incredible things, but another thing she said is that we as a people have failed to really put our stories out there, especially what has been done to our children. And when I think about the Latina community and how they are pushing all media, all social media to know what's been happening to their children that are in cages currently right now in the border. I think we need to, as black people, carry that same energy and make sure that these babies, their stories are not Mm -hmm. forgotten. So, um, again, there's nothing like abolition today. I'm just so grateful to be part of abolition today university (laughs) because this is an (laughs) education and that's all I got to say. Mr. Yusuf and Mr. Max, (laughs) thank you, professors of life. (laughs) Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you. That's um, all. Bye-bye. That, I, think a great I think she might be a fan of the show, Max. I, I think she might, but uh, that's actually a good segue. We were going to go real deep with Louisiana today. 
um, mm-hmm. and we were saving the cream for the top. So uh, I sure. have a track here that's about slavery in the Louisiana Territory, and it really breaks down um, some of the, as Larry said, perverse things about it. You know, uh, one of them, for instance, is the cotton gin caused slavery to explode, but they made their own version of the cotton gin in Louisiana and was one of the first states to become kings of cotton, uh, making a fortune of cotton simply by having an, an enslaved engineer and a, uh, a a white guy took the image that they saw of Eli Whitney's cotton gin and then made their own version <laughs> and, and started kicking it off immediately. The same thing happened with sugar uh, refining. So the person mm-hmm. that really... Uh, was able to come up with the idea how to refine sugar was himself a descendant of slaves. So it's it's just so perverse how sometimes we're the ones that cause so much more damage inadvertently. Um, It's just amazing. But, yeah, let's go ahead and listen to that. It's going to be a few minutes, but trust me, this is something you want to learn. Uh, You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We're joined today by Reverend Anderson out of Louisiana. Uh, Brother Laramie Griffin, also out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, Sister Cannon is called in, and we got Tag Harmon here. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. The flourishing situation of the country enables the people to buy slaves very fast. Here you will ask, what do they want with so many Negroes? The answer is to make more money. Again, you will ask, what do they want with so much money? The answer is to buy more Negroes. Since its founding more than a century before, Louisiana's survival had depended on slavery. But now, under American rule, the region's plantation economy was beginning to change and grow. And the demand for slaves grew with it. Cotton became king in Louisiana first, almost before any other place in the antebellum South. That's because the first working cotton gin in the entire Mississippi Valley was built by two Louisianians in 1795. Following a newspaper description of Eli Whitney's machine, a Baton Rouge area planter, Daniel Clark, and a master mechanic, John Barclay, transformed the region's cotton industry. John Barclay was a slave. Soon, Daniel Clark's cotton gins were operating up and down the river, and by the time Eli Whitney's cotton revolution had occurred on the Atlantic coast, cotton was already galvanizing a new economic prosperity for Louisiana. With the coming of the cotton gin, Louisiana's fields were soon blanketed in white. Anglo-American planters flocked to the territory of Orleans, hoping to get rich. These individuals were simply businessmen. They came to make a profit in cotton production, and they came uh, at a, uh, and found themselves uh, able to acquire land in one of the richest river deltas in the world. And what they did was expand that production of cotton as rapidly as possible, and they pushed the slave workforce. More and more slaves were needed to plant, pick, and process the cotton. But if cotton was king, there was a rival to the throne, sugar. Sugar had been grown in Louisiana since colonial times. 
Prior to the 1790s, however, there was no good process for refining sugar. In 1795, Atien Boré, a sugar planter at New Orleans who would later be mayor of the city, perfected a good process for refining sugar. Sugar became a major cash crop along the lower Mississippi Valley as Louisiana soon emerged as a major sugar producer for the United States. Later, sugar production would be further revolutionized by inventor Norbert Rear. Just as the cotton gin had expanded cotton production, Rear's more efficient vacuum pan processing would increase the demand for sugar and slaves. It was a bitter irony for a man who was himself a descendant of slaves. Sugar and cotton transformed Louisiana and the institution of slavery. Vast plantations sprang up along the river. Some were manned by as many as a thousand slaves. Agriculture was assuming the spirit of the industrial age. Like the factories of the North, profitable plantations operated as well-oiled machines, with human beings functioning as little more than parts to be worn out and replaced. The great factories were, in the beginning of the 19th century, were not indoors. They were on southern cotton and sugar plantations. They were factories in the field. What they usually did was find out what would be your maximum weight for an average day. So, for example, if you could pick 300 pounds of cotton, they expected 300 pounds every day. If you came in under, you'd be beaten. If you had a very good day and you brought in more, that became your new quota. They used to whip slaves if they didn't pick enough cotton. They were stripped of all clothing and whipped with rawhide. And they'd be put back to picking cotton with all that suffering. The only thing that exceeded the demand for slaves was the desire for profit. Within a few years of the purchase, the slave population surged to over 35,000. More than half of all Louisianians were in bondage. With the purchase, American ideals of liberty had come to Louisiana, but not to Louisiana's slaves. In colonial times, Louisiana's slaves were governed by the Code Noir, the Black Code, which guaranteed them certain limited rights. But those rights were abolished by the Americans. Discipline was given almost wholly to the masses under the American legal code. They no longer would recognize slave marriages. Husband could be sold apart from his wife. Children could be sold apart from their families. Uh, slaves owned property. That would change under the Americans. In an uneasy compromise with northern lawmakers, Congress banned the importation of slaves to the United States in 1808. However, that didn't stop slaves from being traded within the United States. 
and many hundreds more were smuggled into Louisiana by bands of pirates, like Jean Lafitte. The great numbers daily imported is alarming to the thinking part of the people. I am fearful that unless a stop is soon put to the increasing of the number, that day is fast approaching when whites will fall a sacrifice to the blacks. Oh, Lord, set me free. Take me from slavery and set me free. Oh, Lord, set me free. Take me from slavery and set me free. When I'm feeling down and loud, oh, Lord, set me free. Take me from slavery and set me free.
the sheer ideal that the brilliance and the magnificence of black magic proliferated the the slave trade and mm. how many times have we watched the magnificence and the brilliance of black talent end up making more money for others to be taking things away from our community and that part for me was just so deja vu the other mm-hmm. thing that was just so deja vu for me is that when we look at the number of people that we have under state control today and the proliferation of slavery in its existing form, that the banning of importation, one thing only made it an underground industry, didn't didn't stop it to begin with. And they I think about now how, after that. Yeah, they how people talk us, about yep. guns in our community and everybody goes, I don't know nobody in the hood that's manufacturing guns. Right. Well, interesting thing because everything about Louisiana, when we brought up that 600 pre-trial detainees were purchased, purchased by LaSalle Corrections to be brought into Louisiana to fill one of their facilities. And the irony that the the story that's always being told is the reason we need to build all these bigger prisons is public safety. But you went out and made a purchase of 600 human beings to bring them into the state. And the ideal that once you didn't have the importation, it actually expanded the exploitation of those who are already here. And the thing that's just, it, it just, it doesn't stop for me is just never the past. And the sheer fact, whether it was the the article about the judges that I believe was out of, of Pennsylvania or yes. the, the lack of accountability for these bond monitoring companies, for the, the prison enterprises, that as long as we continue to make profitability the king, there's no incentive to get rid of slavery. And that just, it, it, it feels, besides empowering, it also feels so frightening that these stories are such continuations of today. And all mm-hmm. that has changed is the product we're talking about, that it may not be cotton anymore, but those bodies all have a productivity to them. That's right. And that in Louisiana, as everybody knows, that in Angola, they have uh, the rodeo. And I remember when we first moved here, it was interesting. School kids had an obligatory trip to the largest prison in the world. This was a field trip, and most school kids went to it, to a rodeo in a prison. And yet now we have people that would do anything before they allowed this history to be taught or presented in any of our educational facilities. And so I, I, I like what the previous speaker said about Abolition Today University. I, 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 I think I've enrolled. 
<laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Reverend Anderson. You know, uh, he said in the very beginning, reading as one of the slavers from Louisiana, he said, what do they want with so many Negroes to make more money? What do they want with mm-hmm. so much money to buy more Negroes? And that's the mindset. Is it profitable? In we don't cycle. care about human rights or anything like that. Is it profitable? Martin Luther King Jr. said in, I believe it was 1958, in his speech in Galilee, uh, where he said that the white man is not doing what he thinks is morally right. He's doing what he thinks mm-hmm. is economically profitable. And that's how they look at it, as expendable, uh, acceptable losses, garbage people, just numbers. Like, how much money can we make out of them? Just look at the homeless population, which is constantly now being assaulted with minor crimes being turned into felonies. A homeless person sitting on the streets is worth zero dollars to that city, state, or county. But the moment you put them into a cage, they're worth forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. That's how much money now they're now generating, and that's how they think about it, which is why they criminalize us, uh, brother Larry. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, I can't even think, you know, just that, that's what this, that's what slavery is about, you know, it's about profiting. Like, how could you feel putting someone's child up for sale, but people get mad at, you know, organized sports? But you know, organized sports is, is one thing, but selling kids into slavery um, just for profit, not their children. Because you get, you know, something out of, you know, your child playing football, but, you know, selling your child into uh, into the juvenile system, knowing that you want them, you they they want these children to go to adult prison so they can make more and more money and continue to uh, uh, criminalize us on a daily basis, as you can see with the over-policing, and, and they make profits off of us, off of crime. Every single dollar, you go to court for a ticket, that's more money. You miss a court date, that's more money for the officer because he has to stay, because he has to uh, uh, do overtime. They talk about a base pay for officers. These officers make more in overtime than they do on a base pay. So why do they need money every year for something that they're not helping? They're not part of public safety. They're part of public monopoly. That's what they're part of. I don't care about them at all. Because I know their history, I know the history. Not only, and that's current. That's not. Come on, say that's current, and they, they they're doing the same exact thing as all of us have said on this call already. The same. If there's nothing different, the only difference they always say is we have now have cell phones. That's the only difference. Um, I, I and, and I don't know it at all. Electricity. <laughs> like it's the same. Yeah. Same thing, just electricity. And uh, yeah. you know, we just we just have to say it out loud. Like everybody said, we have to say it out loud, especially during blackout. We have to make it known weekly what they are doing. So, and and we have to tell our stories about what really goes on um, behind these walls. We can't be afraid, and we also have to build a wall to protect those who speak out. Also. Uh, make them strong and make them proud of themselves to protect their own neighborhood. You know, every call that they make, every call you make to the police, that's another, that's another dollar for them to come out. Another, you know, I'm saying just another dollar, not a dollar amount, but you know, money 
more money for them to come out. Oh well, we have to had to make five hundred more calls a year, so we need more money for gas as our tax dollars. But why do we have to answer to a third party entity anyway? They've given too given too much power just currently to these to these police states to these 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 slave catchers who don't care anything about public safety. They care about public monopoly. Word. Uh, thank you, brother. And I uh, just want to say, remember Ronald Green uh, and what's going on right now with his case. Mm-hmm. Cover up all the way up to the top. That's the environment that we're dealing with in Louisiana, uh, where they can beat a man to death and get away with it on camera, even after lying all the way up to the top. Uh, I want to go to one of our callers, uh, Brother Tag. I-, I got a specific question for you. During the audio, we heard the brothers say that these men were just businessmen. When I heard that, I was like, businessmen? These pedophile, murderous, slave, that's the word that you found to use? They were just businessmen? What do you think about that particular statement? Well, at least in some sense, I'm reminded of the display we've seen just recently in California with regard to uh, ACA3 and the fact that it it was the uh, quote-unquote businessmen or the business people or the finance uh, department of finance. Yeah, the the Department of Finance uh, that that wanted to start quoting all kinds of figures, you know, behind uh, printing costs and ink and, you know, uh, how, how could we possibly start actually paying workers, you know, minimum wage, or how could we possibly, et cetera, how can we, how can we change language that's been, you know, in, uh, in, in place for all of this time, we're going to have to, we're going to have to print things, ink is going to come out of, uh, you know, the California state budget, et cetera. So uh, I, I don't know, it just, it, 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 it sounds to me as though uh, the, the business class, um, seems to get a lot more uh, focus and attention in terms of um, allocation of resources and uh, any kind of concern about just basic uh, human rights and well-being uh, compared to uh, us um, or, or any class among us uh, outside of the, the slaver capitalist class. Yeah, that whole justify your existence as a slaver thing is just over my head man <laughs> i don't know how they do it <laughs> businessmen like you're literally buying and selling human beings you know the horrors they're enduring and you're doing this against an entire people in an entire country after a genocide on another group of people that's not a businessman those are the agents of the devil himself calling it business mm. and justifying it am i wrong reverend anderson not even a little bit. I always, I always say it, it, it's always interesting when you came to somebody else's house, stole what belonged to them, and then you want to put everybody else out. That, yeah, that the trail of tears is long and complete and funny how when it's that kind of crime. And I always think about and go back to that Rittenhouse young man where you left your house where nothing was going on, armed with weapons, went to somebody else's town, 
not to protect anybody that lived in your house or mattered to you. You went to protect somebody else's property, and then you walked away scot-free. And if there's no other definition, then that is a cold-blooded killer. But what is the one distinction? What does he look like? And when the term, he's just a businessman, yeah, because there's no justice, there's just us. And occasionally there are people who get caught in this system who are not us, but that is an accident. There is purpose to the product, and the product is specific, whether it is the folk of color that live here or the people who are the immigrant class or the people who struggle with being unsheltered or the people that are suffering from addiction and mental illness. It's a very specific class. The darker that fruit is, the less there's any concern that it has a right to exist. And I just wanted to add one other thing because it just struck me and struck me and struck me about the children, the children just being property. And I, in the work I do here, I watch people every day have everything they have sucked up by the criminal justice system. So the fines and the fees, and, and we're talking about at the pre-trial level. We're not even talking about right. before they have incarceration. And the quiet secrecy of money. And I discovered here that around February or March, around that time frame, there is something called bail season. I don't know if you all have ever heard of it. And bail season was when people got their tax returns. They can find bail a relative out. And I thought to myself the ideal that every part of who we are has been monetized. Yes, our suffering. And, and we don't even recognize, like, if you ever go into a butcher shop or a meat shop, you'll see that chart. You know the one I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That has all the different parts of the cow or the chicken right. or whatever. But we've been monetized that way. Thing left that they cannot turn into a doubt. So it's not just the person they put in the cage. It's their progeny. It's their mother through commissary and through all the fines and fees. It's every bit of the legacy of us. And the shocking just continuum. No matter how you look at this, there's no breakage in the slavery. We just must must start beginning to recognize and acknowledge we are in an active slave state, not not a well, it's sort of slavery, but it didn't really say no, it's slavery. Exactly. Legalized. Through your own constitution. Mm-hmm. And and the other part I thought was so interesting is that the Americanized version of this. Mm-hmm. 
is so specifically this is the methodology of which the capitalism is developed from. It is a very, very set economic model. Yeah. And how we have to recognize that it's not a morality model. It is an economic model. And if we keep trying to have, and I tell people that all the time, you keep trying to have a morality discussion with somebody who ain't moral, that's like trying to teach pigs to fly. <laughs> it's kind of dumb, and it makes the pigs mad. You trying to get a sociopath to feel sorry for you? <laughs> yeah. Right. We, keep, we keep, to some degree, trying to have that discussion. And my point is, let's play chess and not checkers. The only language that is understood here is economics. And until we fight for our own economics in the sense that we have to understand how people are monetizing us to break it. And as long as half of us think that ain't real and the other half of us are are constantly the survivors of a system we shouldn't even have to survive through. We really have to... Tonight has just reminded me so much. Teach these stories. We have to make these lessons plain. Yes, ma'am. We have to stop allowing our people to die for a lack of knowledge because they are. Well, feel free to invite them to Abolition Today University. <laughs> I, I, will be, I will be. I will be enrolling some folks. I'm telling you. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Reverend Anderson. Uh, we're coming up on the conclusion of our program. We got one more segment you want to hang out for. Got to give a shout out to our sponsors, and I do want to make note of the uh, August 19th March on Washington that really uh, mm-hmm. turbo boosted everything we've been doing. And is I think is a key element that put us where we're at today. Uh, but before I do that, I want to just take a few seconds to give everybody a chance to have a final comment. Get just keep it brief, uh, Brother Larry. Um, I don't have anything, man. I I definitely am always learning. And if I ask, have a question, I always hit you in your inbox <laughs> and you school me on some things, you know. So. Um, I definitely thank you all. Thank you to Reverend Anderson. It's, you hear the conviction and the realness. This is not a this is not a job. This is this is life, and you know, with life, it comes from a different place because we see it, we feel it, we hear it. We, you know, uh, is everything about us? It's, it's our futures that that's at stake here. That's all, right, all I have to say. Thank you, uh, uh, Reverend Anderson. Thank you for that. I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for making time in your schedule to come down and be with us for uh, the premiere and for the kickoff of our Yes on 7 campaign. And thank you for allowing us to, to just learn today and to be blessed because knowledge, even if it's painful knowledge, it's important and Thank you. I, I I I could just wrap it all up in that There's two words. Thank you. Ubuntu, my sister. All right, uh, Sister Karen. 
There's not, you know what I mean, short and sweet. There's none like abolition today. The more you know, the more your children will know. And, again, there's nothing like abolition today university because as you learn, oh, just there's nothing like this. I'm just always in awe. Every show, every show, you guys are not only doing God's work, but the work. Bless y'all. Bless y'all. Brother Tag. Thank you. Yes, just building off that full, full echo uh, what's been said, and uh, of course, long live the dragon. Uh, eternal shouts to the spirit of Field Marshal George Jackson, and long live the abolitionists all day, every day. Thank you, brother. Um, I want to give a, a little information about the Millions of Prisoners March on Washington. In collaboration with inmate led organizations, five years ago, on August 19th, we organized the largest prison slave labor work strike in U.S. history, with 24 states participating and supporting marches occurring in over a dozen cities. The Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. The main rally happened in Washington, D.C., in Freedom Plaza. Speakers included notable activists and abolitionists from all across the nation, uh, Brother Mumia, Ramona Africa, Robert King, and many, many more, including myself. I like to think it was a catalyst moment that inspired long-standing change and had immediate results. A year later, Colorado became the first state to remove its constitutional slavery exception clause. Two years after that, Utah and Nebraska did the same. Two years after that, five states, the Freedom Five, are on the ballot right now for 2022. That's Alabama, Vermont, Oregon, Tennessee, and of course, Louisiana. Major institutions have joined our ranks as slavery abolitionists. The ACLU, the NAACP, whose president in Louisiana was right there at the premiere, uh, as well as the ACLU uh, president, and a dozen plus more organizations, including religious communities nationwide, who know that this is God's work. I knew then where we would be now. And because of that, on that day, I had to give the greatest speech of my life. You can find that speech on our page on abolition today. With that said, I want to thank our callers and guests and our listeners and supporters. You'll see us here next week on Abolition Today. Peace. Brother Yusuf? Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. Uh, thank you, Max, for giving us that history as well. There's other historical events that will be on the page, like when the uh, stock market crashed at the announcement that the U.S. government was no longer going to have uh, – private prisons. There's an article about that, but we'll talk about that in the future. We also have an article from Ballotpedia that actually picked up on the five states. So make sure you go to our Facebook page for that. And just getting into our final segment, well, first, before I get into our final segment, let's thank our sponsors. We always have time to thank our sponsors. Uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the IMWE Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sama Urge, that's Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, the Black Talk Radio Network, and the Abolished Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash abolition today, and go to our Abolition Today Facebook page. Both of them have, you know, will have all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. We're available on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to join the movement by going to AbolishSlavery.us, and also you can text 52886 or text in the exception to 52886 and follow the prompts. So tonight's Bridging the Gap. 
Yes, sir. There yeah. is one more thing. Remember, next week we're going to be in Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont. So tune in to the yeah. live stream of the Abolish Slavery National Network's anniversary celebration. Absolutely, and that's the what is what is that Facebook page? And the exception, uh, I forgot. What you the, can go to uh, abolishslavery.us. Dot us. Go right there. Tune into that. And so getting to our Bridging the Gap, we have Orson Welles reading John Brown's speech at his sentencing. And it's, been, it's followed up by something that's one of my new favorite songs that I learned on our road trip to Louisiana. It's called A Sinister Kid by the Black Keys. So, again, we won't be on the air next week, but definitely go to AbolishSlavery.us and tune in for the events celebrating our second anniversary of the Abolished Slavery National Network. So uh, until then, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. I have, may it please the court, a few words to say. In the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted of a design on my part to free slaves. I intended certainly to have made a clean thing of that matter, as I did last winter when I went into Missouri and there took slaves without the snapping of a gun on either side, moving him through the country and finally leaving him in Canada. I designed to have done the same thing again on the larger scale. That was all I intended. I never did intend murder or treason or the destruction of property or to excite or incite slaves to rebellion or to make insurrection. I have another objection. And that is that it is unjust that I should suffer such a penalty. Had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the greater portion of the witnesses who testified in this case, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right. Every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. This court acknowledges, too, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed, which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament, which teaches me that all things whatsoever I would that men should do to me, I should do even so to them. 
It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. I endeavored to act up to that instruction. I say I am yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe that to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, I did no wrong but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I say, let it be done.
Abolition. 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 Hi, my name is Jeanette Smith. I am a slavery abolitionist. Some of you may know me. I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance. Max and Yusuf do not like to ask for money, so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets, and this is so important. So if you can help, you can find the information at the top of the Facebook page for Abolition Today. Thank you. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton.